Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 15th September 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson bringing oh. us Eastern approaches from yes. the Netherlands. Okay, just jumping on there a little bit. But anyway, don't worry. Uh, so the question is, will it be plan A or plan B? Brian, well, I suspect it's probably going to be plan nine. And for anybody that doesn't understand quite what that means, uh, you better join us for extra and I'll give an explanation. But uh, some people I'm sure will get that uh, that joke. But anyway, uh, Boris then was speaking. There he is. I'm not going to uh, bore you with, or with, with his voice because I'm sure you've heard enough of it. Uh, but uh, he was speaking yesterday on the live stream uh, because we've got this really open economy now as a result of this uh, vaccination program. Uh, and so we can continue following plan A, apparently, unless we need to go to plan B. Um, so uh, uh, the UK is incomparably better placed to fight coronavirus now than uh, anyone else on the planet, in fact. Uh, and so the plan A is to continue to boost vaccination numbers, uh, to ask people to think about continuing using face coverings, to ask people to wash their hands and get a test and uh, to stay at home if they're not feeling too well uh, and these kinds of things. Um, he said that uh, there is a reserve plan, which is plan B, which includes COVID passports and mandatory face masks and asking people to work from home. Uh, but they're only going to implement plan B if there's massive pressure comes on the National Health Service. Um, so he said that... Uh, uh, you know, we we would be facing these restrictions, Plan B, potentially based on the numbers of hospital admissions um, to stop the NHS being overwhelmed. Um, but the problem is, of course, uh, Brian, that at the moment, uh, hospital admission numbers are based on, it doesn't really matter what symptoms you have when you go in. Uh, it's if you have a positive PCR test when you arrive there, you're considered to be uh, COVID uh, no matter what, even if it's a stroke or a heart attack. You have a temperature. If you have... You have a temperature. Well, no, well, well, but that, but, but uh, even without symptoms, if if it's a positive test, that's you become a COVID statistic. So, so the question is, uh, if the NHS is overwhelmed uh, in the winter, what will the actual reason be? Um, so uh, that's what Boris was saying. Plan nine, I think, is is coming. Um, but uh, let's move on to this uh, because this was tweeted out by the Telegraph today. Um, just fifty nine fully vaccinated people without serious health conditions died from COVID-19 in England this year. Uh, that was the text of their tweet, and they then linked to their article. The text of the tweet, I'm sorry, Telegraph, but that's a complete lie. That is not the case. You have stated in the text of your tweet that 59 fully vaccinated people without serious health conditions died from COVID in England this year. In fact, your own subheadline on your article states that this is per 100,000 population, which you don't specify in your tweet. Um, so the tweet itself is simply a lie. Misleading, grossly misleading, Mike. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, but where's Maria, uh, Marianne Spring um, when it comes to this type of tweet? But anyway, let's. Uh, th this is their claim, 59 COVID deaths this year amongst double jab people who weren't extremely sorry, clinically vulnerable. Uh, in other words, they didn't have underlying health conditions. Now, of course, when it comes to COVID numbers, we ignore underlying health conditions. When it comes to vaccination, we don't. Um, so then the Telegraph uh, pushed this out as well uh, earlier. Uh, I think this was yesterday. 99.51% uh, of coronavirus deaths since the beginning of the year were in people who were not fully vaccinated. Um, and they uh, have an article here asking how many COVID vaccinations 
have been given in my area and, and detailing the statistics and so on. Um, so what's this all about? Well, it's new uh, information coming from the Office for National Statistics. Uh, this is the ONS's release, Coronavirus Brackets COVID-19 Latest Insights, colon, Deaths. Um, and uh, well, the Office for National Statistics uh, provides this little graph here. Uh, now the, uh, uh, the, the legend is at the top there. So the blue color is unvaccinated people, the dark blue color, the light uh, blue color is people who um, have died within 21 days of the first dose. The sort of purpley ready color is uh, 21 days or more after the first dose. The green color is second dose. Um, and the claim from the National, uh, the Office for National Statistics is that this represents deaths involving COVID-19 or the, that deaths involving COVID-19 are consistently lower for people who have received two vaccinations. And this comes back to this whole question of who is a COVID-19 death um, and as we've made the point, uh, hospital admissions at the moment, the policy is that if you come in and receive a positive PCR test, you're a COVID-19 patient, whether you have any COVID-19 symptoms or not, or whether you're in hospital for cancer, heart attack, stroke, whatever it happens to be. Um, so anyway, the Office for National Statistics zooms in on the graph, uh, and this is all about age standardized mortality rates. And they're saying that uh, for those fully vaccinated are consistently lower. And so this all sounds very good. But then we look further down the same document and we look at uh, the table that they published in other documents as well, which shows deaths from all causes. Uh, and in this case, they're making the point that deaths from all causes in recent weeks have been above the five year average. So let's just zoom in on that, uh, particularly these last eight weeks. Now, I'm not going to include uh, the week ending the 3rd of September 2021, because as they make the point um, on their uh, graph here, this was a uh, bank holiday week and that affected registrations. So that week can't be included in the trend uh, and we need to wait till uh, the following releases to, to find out what happens next. But let's zoom in on this eight weeks that we want to look at. And the dotted black line there shows the five-year average. And so what you can see quite clearly is that the dark blue boxes on the graph are deaths which are attributed to COVID-19 uh, and the uh, tail color is uh, deaths which are absolutely not COVID-19, um, according to the Office for National Statistics. Um, and what do we discover? Well, we actually discover that uh, there were 3,742 extra deaths in that eight-week period, um, just uh, leading up to the week before the 3rd of September. Um, and deaths attributed to COVID, there were 3,468 excess deaths. So what, what do we see here, Brian? We see that, in fact, there were more extra deaths caused by non-COVID-related problems than there were from COVID-related problems. This is utterly ignored by the Office for National Statistics. They don't give any explanation for this, uh, and they don't uh, investigate what these extra deaths were. So um, I just wanted to put this uh, article up briefly. Woman 27 died of cancer after five months of fighting for face-to-face -face appointment. Uh, and of course, we're hearing this anecdotally right across the country, people who can't get access to GPs, who can't get access to consultants, who can't get treatment for longstanding health conditions, um, and they are dying. So the question then is, when we look at this graph from the Office for National Statistics, and their claim is that uh, there were lower age standardized mortality rates uh, for people that uh, had received their second dose, is that because those people 
died as a result of vaccination, uh, as a direct reaction to the vaccine? Is it because they died from cancer uh, because it was untreated? Is it because they died from strokes or heart attacks or other problems that were untreated? And the thing that came to my mind as I was looking at this, Brian, is that the claim is that we've got to save lives. Public health is all about saving lives. But it seems to me that what has actually happened as a result of uh, the policy is that we're not saving lives. We're just finding alternative ways to kill people. Um, and so because the NHS has, is utterly failing at the moment to provide any service, um, we're not recognizing uh, people that are dying from non-COVID related issues that are extra deaths compared to the five-year average. Those aren't getting any coverage in the mainstream press. We're not recognizing when those deaths are vaccine related and we're not recognizing uh, when those deaths are from a failure of healthcare. We don't know the answer to that. So uh, surely that's something that uh, those with greater resources should be investigating. Uh, absolutely true, Mike. Something that I've begun to wonder, we, we can say, UK Column can say over the years, we've actually had good service from the Office of National Statistics. You've contacted them on many occasions and they've taken the trouble to come back with a good answer to what you've been looking for or they've answered a specific question on their data. I wonder whether the case at the moment is that uh, it is not actually ONS statisticians that are producing this. I wonder whether this data is actually coming out from the belly of the beast. And that what do I mean by that beast? I mean the collaboration, the clear collaboration between the MHRA, which says it's there to protect public safety, but which we can see is very um, obviously and closely working with the pharmaceutical and the vaccine industry. So is it the MHRA and the pharmaceutical companies themselves that are producing these statistics? This is just my question, but I, I just wonder how the NHS could have been subverted to now be totally untrustworthy in its information. I suspect their information is coming from a different source. You mean the ONS? Oh, sorry, ONS. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's that's very true. But if that's the case, then the ONS should be publicly stating that. And if so, there, at some point, there is some criticism deserved because the, none of the data sets, as we've mentioned many times, none of the data sets tally uh, and nobody's yeah. questioning that. If, if we give a if we give a quick job to our audience and say, if you're interested and you should be in what we're talking about here, uh, then what's really needed is a question into the Office of, the, of National Statistics to ask them where they're getting their data from and which uh, statisticians are processing that data. Yes. So, uh, well, Booster Programme was also mentioned by Boris uh, over on his live stream yesterday. And, uh, well, there's a statement come out from June Rain, the chief executive of the MHRA, on the issue of boosters, uh, because boosters uh, are going to be offered uh, from next week to those that are considered most vulnerable. Um, so June Rain said, we confirmed on the 9th of September 2021 that COVID-19 vaccines made by Pfizer and AstraZeneca can be used as safe and effective booster doses. So they made that statement, but uh, not quite clear how they made that confirmation. But anyway, uh, this is an important regulatory change as it gives further options for the vaccination deployment program, which has saved tens of thousands of lives on the basis of what uh, information is she making that statement? I think we've covered no, we that never many get times it. over the last uh, few weeks. It's on the basis of computer models, uh, and these aren't uh, uh, reliable. 
the regulatory decision followed a careful review of the available data on safety and effectiveness of a booster, uh, doses by the MHRA and, and the independent, uh, sorry, of booster doses by the MHRA and the Independent Commission on Human Medicines. Uh, the Commission on Human Medicines took into account data on waning vaccine effectiveness after the second dose, providing important insights into potentially waning immunity. Uh, the data reviewed showed that giving the booster jabs with flu vaccines at the same time is safe and does not affect an individual's immune response to either vaccine. Uh, and as with the first and second doses, if anyone has a suspected side effect, please report it to us using our yellow card scheme, is what she said. And how many uh, mainstream press organs uh, reported that? Not many, as far as I could see, and tending towards zero. Uh, but, uh, you know, the point here is that, uh, again, we're saying that the MHRA has just uh, slipped into the government's uh, narrative that they've been put, the government has been pushing out over the last several months that this winter is going to be a bad one because we're going to have a combination of COVID-19, influenza and RSV all hitting at the same time this winter. And so uh, the MHRA getting prepared for that by making sure that people can have their boosters and their flu shots at the same time. And but very soon, no doubt, uh, because they're under development um, from the same vial. Yeah. Yes. Um, Alex, uh, welcome to the programme. I wonder if you've got any thoughts on what we've just presented. Well, we seem to have two statistical or even three statistical uh, bodies now, don't we? We have the ONS and then as we reported about coming up to a year ago, Public Health England and the other, we have to call them four nations now, don't we? Apparently Britain's not a nation now. The other four nations, public health bodies, started issuing their own stats. And now uh, the MHRA is putting its own gloss on stats and Dr. Rain is making her own interpretive statements on the basis of undisclosed statistics. Uh, so there's there's three competing camps there, with, even just within England before you get into devolution. Uh, not ideal. And to go right back to the beginning of the segment there, you presented Booster Boris telling us all that plan A was to ask people, ask people to consider masking, or Britain uniquely in the world has started to call masks face coverings, and uh, people all of a sudden uh, have started thinking that this is an English word, a bit like social distancing. People have suddenly decided that that's a word, it isn't. Um, well, it's eerily parallel to the Dutch cabinet because, as I'll cover in a later segment, the Netherlands is about to introduce the same requirements of a of a plan A and plan B in a, in a certain sense. Uh, but there and in many other countries where they say uh, do this or, uh, or or we will close you, they just say we will close nightclubs or restaurants if they don't go along with the plan A, the vaccine passports. Britain uniquely talks about asking. So uh, those who are watching from abroad ought to realise, I think, that uh, when Britain says we will ask you to do something, they mean order. But it just doesn't sound very nice. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, uh, Alex. Well, you've mentioned testing, Mike. Last night, I was able to do a very short 10-minute uh, segment with former nurse Debbie Evans that uh, we've had on the UK Column News before. And uh, what did we do? Well, we decided to do what's known as an unboxing of a lateral flow test. Um, and uh, this was a, a very interesting little segment. I'm sure there are many people who have not had a look inside one of these uh, boxes to see what it contains, what instructions are there. Uh, this is a very heavily edited uh, little clip of our chat last night. Let's have a look at it. Thank you for inviting me to show everybody this. This is the front of the box. And as you can see, it says NHS on the top. 
And then this is the back of the box, fiery date, a barcode, and then contents of what is meant to be in the box. On the side of the box, it says made in China. And then on the other side of the box, it gives the manufacturing address in China. Everything comes out like that. Um, there's an extraction tube holder holder there, which I guess you have to stick something in. Um, and then we've got quite a few of these. These are COVID self rapid test, rapid antigen test. There's one test in there. And I'm, I'm guessing these are the batch numbers and the expiry dates. Just pop it up against the side of my nose to my nasopharyngeal space. You'll see virtually how far it's got to go. So I'd say probably there. So this much of it, plus probably a little bit more has got to go into your nasopharyngeal space. So that's a very, very long intrusive swab. And I believe that has to go down your throat. So I hope everybody's got plenty of time and their glasses handy, because I know that I would probably have difficulty processing all of this. So the first page is advice about taking the test. So general guidance and warnings. Um, and it says, if you've had a nosebleed within the last 24 hours, swab the other nostril or wait 24 hours. Uh, they're only designed for human use. Do not eat or drink for at least 30 minutes before doing the test to reduce spoiling the test. I hadn't heard that before, but it's in, in here. Um, you may need someone to assist you if you've got problems with your hands or vision. Uh, use a separate test kit for each person and how to store it. And then the next page is who should help self-test and who this test is suitable for. And it seems to be according to your shoe size. I'll just show you that carefully. It seems to show you that according to your shoe size depends on who gets tested. Uh, then we've got prepare your test area and check your contents. So we have to do all of that. Uh, and then set up your test, set it up and take your swab sample and doing a test on someone else, which I find very worrying as an ENT nurse, I would not be, I, I would not feel confident on doing a test of this magnitude. Uh, read your results and report your results. And apparently nothing is valid until you've actually phoned the NHS and reported it with a QR code. Uh, what your test results mean, uh, avoid results, uh, and then making a note. So there's a little, section here where you can write down where you've had your test and what the result was and what's in the box and then the back of it is index of the symbols so this came in it and this is the qualification certificate which the first part of it is written in um, Chinese but then on this side is written in English um, so there you have the uh, unboxing of the lateral flow test. And one of the key points that Debbie made is the instruction booklet uh, was very detailed. Um, it's quite likely an elderly person would have great trouble in actually following through what the instructions were. There was nothing about safety. There was nothing in that leaflet warning about safety aspects of doing this test, which Debbie found simply incredible. And of course, at the end, it said, well, you've got to send, send off and get it logged. Otherwise, the thing is, is uh, of no value at all. So if I just pop up on screen so we can see this is some of the 
content um, full of plastic packaging, if you're somebody who's uh, deeply concerned about the world and plastics at the moment. Uh, the booklet here with, as I say, nothing to do with safety in carrying out this test. And uh, this is the famous Chinese certificate. Uh, Alex, I've got to say that when I saw this certificate, and I also saw Made in China on the box, I found myself lost for words because, of course, the government is telling us at the moment that China is the most dangerous country in the world after Russia. Uh, we've got an aircraft carrier deployed in, into the uh, Chinese South uh, China Sea area of operations. We've got the Chinese taking over our steel production. Uh, and now we're reliant on the Chinese to look after the health of the nation. Um, if you said this was a security breach back in 1918, everybody would know what you were talking about. Uh, but what we've got at the moment is more confusion. What do you think? Well, the, the big picture for those who haven't been following the grand arc of the narrative is that it was illegal in the United States to do business with the then unrecognized People's Republic of China, uh, the communist China, uh, until the early 70s. And then uh, you could say uh, uh, in, in, the, in the most general sense that the uh, top investors in the US got wind, got advance notice that the country was going to be opened up. If you were a little more cynical, you would say that the, like, the likes of the Bilderberg Group uh, and the CFR magnates knew that uh, China was going to be opened up. So Henry Kissinger, uh, who went went off before Nixon to prepare the way, then it became possible to do business in China. Then Deng Xiaoping made his famous post-cultural revolution, post-Mao statement that there's nothing wrong with getting rich. And then we had this um, sweatshop of the world idea. China itself now is uh, is sending things out to other East Asian countries to manufacture because they have a, a growing middle class. But this is just one, uh, what you've just described there with Debbie is, is one outworking of that in the 2020s. We need the bogeyman but we also need them to produce our stuff for us. Uh, I had dinner last week with an old friend who observed that even Taiwan, nationalist China, which until Nixon's time was the recognized China, uh, they continue to produce a heck of a lot of critical stuff for us as well, including Western companies like Apple having their chips manufactured there to the extent that if big bad China does manage to take Taiwan, uh, he predicted that Apple would, uh, would have a, a slump in trillions of dollars worth of value in its stock. Uh, because they wouldn't be able to produce chips anymore. Uh, something doesn't square about all this, and that's before we get on to the real security breaches, the Huawei issue, which seems to have been wrapped up with Sir Mark Sedwill's tenure at the top of the intelligence services and the cabinet office, and he's now taken a tumble, it seems. We've covered that in the past. Uh, there's been a long policy of just shut up and go along with the idea that China is a threat. You could argue that it is, but we're not allowed to talk detail. We're just supposed to talk about uh, the bully But while we continue to outsource stuff to China. We're completely dependent on them now for our pharmaceuticals now in many cases too, aren't we? Uh, we are. Well, that was the uh, test that's been free, freely handing out at the moment. If you're uncertain still as to what these tests are about, I just took a little bit of information uh, from Horizon. This is the EU Research and Innovation magazine. Uh, sponsored by the European uh, Commission. This was the article, PCR antigen and antibody, five things to know about coronavirus tests. Um, so we just take a little bit out of this text. You can freeze the screen and have a look at it uh, in a little bit more detail if you choose. Uh, and so the opening paragraph here is, while antigen tests look for proteins 
antigen lateral flow tests look for proteins on the surface of the virus to ascertain the presence of the pathogen. PCR, polymerase chain reaction tests, are engineered to seek genetic material called RNA that instructs the virus to make these proteins. And it goes on to say that the advantage of the PCR test supposedly is that it goes to a lab where professional people then deal with it, and this helps the accuracy. And I know you might have a few comments to make on that statement, Mike, but this is the uh, basic uh, comparison analysis in this article. Well, indeed, labs like Randox in Northern Ireland, where there has been massive scandal over the last uh, year about the the quality of the testing and the quality of the labs that they've been testing on. Uh, and, uh, And of course, the other thing about PCR is Patrick is constantly uh, trying to remind people is that uh, um, it relies on an, an amplification of the of the sample yes. and the number of cycles through which you put that uh, sample. Uh, well, eventually you can event basically find anything with a PCR test, anything that you might possibly want to find with it. And of course, uh, the government's very keen that we do find something. Just uh, sticking with the antigen here, it says, in contrast, antigen tests, often referred to as rapid tests, work by mixing the sample with a solution that unleashes specific viral proteins. That combination is then applied to a paper strip that contains a bespoke antibody optimized to bind these proteins if they are present, like a home pregnancy test, the result is reflected as a band on the paper strip. It says the process doesn't require a lab and can be done in up to 30 minutes, but that speed comes at the cost of, quote, sensitivity. Although these tests are reliable when an individual has a high viral load, they are far more prone to false negative results if a person has low amounts of the virus in their body. So the doubt is already creeping in in this article. And then it goes on to say, when it comes to rapid tests, the person who administers the test can be crucial. Uh, It says, but this, uh, so first of all, it sets the scene that uh, the lateral flow test piloted in the city of Liverpool as part of the government's plans to carry out mass vaccinations in the country. And the idea of this test was to get people back into work. But it says this test to enable strategy backfired when scientists found that in a population of mostly people with symptoms, the test sensitivity fell to about 58% when administered by self-trained staff versus 73% when tested by skilled research nurses and 79% when tested by laboratory scientists. In a study that looked at people without symptoms, the sensitivity fell to roughly 49% versus PCR tests. So to take your point, Mike, if the PCR tests are already disastrous, we're not looking at too much here but just to make sure that people uh, can get an idea what the these tests are about. Um, are they any good? Not according to the data we're looking at, but uh, at least they're made in China. Mm, indeed, right, okay. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and they'll be very much uh, needed and appreciated. Also do share our material uh, on the various platforms. Um, Now, I want to just remind everybody again, we published this on Sunday. Uh, We mentioned it on Monday's program, Stabilizing the Code by Dr. Mike Williams. Uh, Please read this and share it. And I'm just going to share with you the conclusion from this article because it really is uh, uh, important. Uh, It says, uh, changes to key parts of the mRNA code in SARS-CoV-2 vaccines uh, may be causal in changing the innate immune response 
via toll-like receptors. Now, this is, it's quite a technical art article, but it's also quite readable, so you will be able to understand what toll-like receptors are by the time uh, you read this. But uh, the conclusion goes on to say, toll-like receptors are important components in defense against infection, and downstream effects may also include inhibition of CD8 T-cell response. Uh, this is uh, pretty key. CD8 is a vital part of the immune system's ability to, for example, eradicate infection and cancer. Uh, these changes may be reflected in recent reactivated uh, uh, varicella zoster infections through specific mechanisms. Uh, uh, those are unclear at the moment. Uh, and he said, goes on to say anecdotal reports of significant uptick in cancer uh, presenting to medical consultants may be consistent with aberrant toll-like receptor and dendritic cell changes leading to an inhibition of the anti-cancer CD8 effector response. Uh, further data are required, but the prospect of an altered CD8 response to infection and cancer is very concerning and should prompt urgent investigation. Of course, as we mentioned earlier in this program, it isn't uh, investigating prompt urgent investigation. Now, this article has come in response to, uh, as it says, anecdotal data, but data which is coming from, from medical professionals uh, who are seeing an uptick in cancers uh, and diagnoses in recent months. Uh, and they're looking for an explanation as to why that would be. Uh, and so this is asking the question. It's not making any statements. It's asking the question, uh, is this related to the, uh, the fact that in order for the vaccination, the mRNA and the vaccinations uh, to be accepted by the body and not rejected by the immune system, that those uh, RNA have been uh, modified and that the, the article describes how the what, type, what form the modification comes in. Uh, and that that modification has effectively uh, created an immune effect, which is potentially uh, harmful. harmful, absolutely. And so questions to be answered uh, and investigations to be done, but they're not being done as yet. So and, and of course, June Rain and the MHRA falls firmly in the in the firing bracket because they should be the ones answering these questions in order to protect public safely. So stay focused on June Rain and the MHRA. That is where the questions should be directed. Um, email in just um, uh, popped up, up on my screen last night just as I was uh, doing that little segment on the uh, test with Debbie Evans. So just to say that just to let you know that the whole series of No Smoke Without Fire has been so informative, if not frightening. Thank you for doing it. And then a question. I wondered if you knew anything about the following, and it's a website for vaxcontrolgroup.com, and whether it's something we unvaccinated can get on board with or just something else to harvest our personal data. Many thanks for all you do at the UK column. It's kept me informed, and it's nice to know there are other people out there like me I did manage to have a quick look at that uh, website and what they appear to be doing is um, choosing individuals, adults and children as well, to stay unvaccinated as a clear control group against which problems or potential problems with vaccinated people can be measured. So taken at face value, it seems a very good initiative, but if anybody could help us out with the background of the people uh, doing it and what they're uh, long-term objectives are, we'd be very grateful. Or if they want to contact us Or themselves. indeed, if they want to contact us themselves, yeah. Um, okay, Alex, uh, stuff going on in Michigan and the United States. Uh, bring us up to date with this. 
The state of Michigan has one of the most tyrannical of governors, as we've seen over the last year, Gretchen. Uh, but quite apart from executive orders coming out of the uh, state uh, governor's office, the state house, the legislature, has been hearing uh, arguments uh, for and against a bill 4471 uh, on uh, outlawing uh, or, or rather making it possible for employers to ban the unjabbed from workspaces. Now, a lady who spoke on behalf of Sense and Liberty there is a local PhD in microbiology and cell biology, Dr. Christina Parks, and the video will be too long to play here, so wait for extra time to listen to her extremely measured calm, cogent, eight-minute arguments, and it's uh, something of a masterclass to those who wish to be giving evidence uh, to legislatures anywhere in the world as to why there is no medical sense uh, or logic or fairness in having uh, such requirements. So even in somewhere as, uh, shall we say, at the cutting edge of the uh, jab agenda as Michigan, there is a wonderful fight back, and uh, it's not un uh, it's not coincidental that uh, Dr. Parks is an African American by heritage. She makes that her final and very compelling point in the speech. Uh, it's not just the Tuskegee experiment that she refers to, which itself is is a forty year series of experiments. Actually, um, it, the African Americans know very well that they have been experimented on and lied to in this medical area for decades, and the very institutions such as the CDC now uh, banging the drum for jabbing were the uh, institutions involved there and she points the finger squarely at them. So do go and listen to that as a kind of tutorial uh, on how to testify to legislatures or make general arguments and that will be an extra time for our members. Staying in the United States and going down to North Carolina, a state I've uh, often visited, and uh, we have a real cultural battle going on there uh, because it's in some ways a core state of the Old South and uh, uh, keen on liberty, but it's also a state that's seen a lot of new uh, entries from other parts of the state and a lot of new money come in. So a whole group of 20 hospitals down in North Carolina has been having an internal Zoom deliberation at high level between senior medical doctors and, get this, the head of marketing for the hospital group. And so uh, a new up-and-coming uh, US site, the National File, we don't endorse any sites, but as usual, we keep our eye on the, the free media. National File seem to be pretty good at checking their sources so far. They are reporting that uh, a doctor has said she wishes to be scary to the public in order to get more North Carolinians to accept the jab uh, at, a, at a nice fee, of course, ultimately, via or courtesy of her hospital group. And uh, the headline goes on to say, if you, in, uh, you, if you inflate COVID numbers, a bit like what you were referring to in your first segment, Mike and Brian, in this case, by uh, saying that everyone who's still in hospital having recovered from COVID is a COVID case to accumulate the numbers, uh, then what you'll be able to do is to tell people if you don't get vaccinated, you know you're going to die. So uh, let's listen to, uh, in the moment, well, in a moment, we'll, we'll first show the relevant uh, write-up here. The main speaker in what we're about to listen to, it's a grainy picture because it's a screen capture from a Zoom call. The lady who's sitting at a, a, de a desk uh, quite away from the camera with a green blouse on who speaks second in this clip is the main protagonist here. She is Mary Rudick, medical doctor. And she is. Uh, she tells the first lady who speaks, Doctor, sorry, uh, Carolyn Fisher, director of marketing, uh, ways in which, the, from a medical perspective, you can put the frighteners on. So we're going to hear very briefly the marketing director, Carolyn Fisher, and then Doctor uh, uh, Mer uh, Doctor Rudick making her, uh, I would say, uh, scandalous uh, medical case for keeping uh, numbers artificially inflated of COVID cases for commercial purposes. Those other numbers are certainly out there. 
I, I guess my feeling at this point in time is maybe we need to be completely a little bit more scary for the public. Then there's another comment is I completely agree. There are many people still hospitalized that we're considering post-COVID, but we're not counting in those numbers. So how do we include those post-COVID people in the numbers of the patients we have in the hospital? So is that all the people who have been in the hospital since the beginning of COVID? Well, or that are still in it. And that's something that I can take to someone else. But I think those are important numbers. The patients that are still in the hospital, that are off the COVID floor, but still are occupying the hospital for a variety of reasons. Okay. Carolyn, we call those... I'm sorry, we, we're calling those recovered now. If you look at yeah. the Navant Health dashboard, they're listed as recovered. But I do think it, from our standpoint, we would still consider them a COVID patient because they're still healing. Yeah. So I think that that needs to be highlighted as well. Yeah. Because once they're off isolation, they drop from the COVID numbers. That's exactly right. Kellen, we can talk offline and yeah. how we run that up to marketing. And- All right. So I'm just going to say, Carolyn, I think we have to be more blunt. We have to be more forceful. We have to say something coming out. You know, you don't get vaccinated. You know, you're going to die. I mean, let's just, let's just be really blunt to these people. So there you have it. There's one medical doctor on camera, although, of course, it's a leak from a, an internal conversation saying we are going to scare people by telling them if you don't get jabbed, you're going to die. And we know with the, some of the methodology they're going to use for doing that now, which is to knowingly take people who do not have COVID in a medical sense and add them to the COVID case numbers. Uh, Alex, if I just add a bit to that, I think uh, we need to take our minds back to 2020 when the SAGE team Um, put out minutes saying that it was going to use applied behavioural psychology to ramp up fear in the population. Um, So we know that this, it's heinous, I'm running out of words to describe the actions, but this this is utterly disgraceful action in America. But of course, the same tactics were being used and discussed um, within the SAGE group in UK. And we should also remember that the Cabinet Office document, which I keep reminding people of because every adult in this country should read it, Mindspace 2010, uh, the technology to manipulate people's minds where the government is boasting of its ability to change the way people think and behave by the use of applied psychology was sold on in the first instance to the US and to Australia. So uh, we need to really track down the roots of this very dangerous use of applied political psychology. Alex. But alongside the better known 2010 document, I would say due exclusively to your publicity that it's well known, the 2010 document, which is easily found by searching for Mindspace PDF in a search engine. Shortly afterwards, the same authors, that is the Cabinet Office, Britain's supreme agency, and the Institute for Government brought out a second document called Behavioural Government. Viewers who want to research that should look for the document Behavioural Government, brought out by the Institute for Government shortly after the 2010 Mindspace document to round out the picture of how we would get a decade later to this kind of technique around the English-speaking world and beyond. Okay, thank you for that. Now, um, 
The question of uh, the effects of vaccination on uh, fertility continue to rumble on, but we've got a number of fact checks uh, going on because here's uh, AP fact check. Experts have debunked the claim that erectile dysfunction and swollen testicles are linked to COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, rapper Nikki uh, Minaj uh, drew attention to the unfounded theory in a tweet, get the facts, and you can get the facts from Associated Press. But Twitter themselves uh, were uh, putting their information on here. Uh, there is no evidence that COVID-19 vaccines cause male fertility problems, the CDC says. Uh, contrary to myths circulating on social media uh, and to rappers and medical experts uh, and public health organizations say there's no uh, evidence that COVID-19 uh, affect male fertility. So what is this uh, no evidence based upon? Well, the no evidence is based upon a study uh, which was run at the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine which studied 45 men, uh, Brian, 45 men. And on the basis of 45 men, uh, we seem to have uh, made the decision that there's no evidence of any problems uh, at all. So that should give us uh, absolute confidence. And we also know there's no evidence because uh, both with the um, MHRA yellow card system and the US VAERS system, the data is being collected, but no analysis is being made of the vaccine adverse effect. Uh, so if that's uh, male fertility dealt with, what about female uh, pregnancy and so on? Well, here is a new study. This is on clinicaltrials.gov. So it is a clinical trial uh, going on at the moment. Uh, let's have a look at uh, when it's running. Uh, it's running from uh, June the 1st, 2021. So it began on June the 1st, ends on December the 31st, 2025. It's got a more sensible 10,000 participants involved in this. Uh, it's an observational study. Uh, and uh, uh, it's being run by this organization here, or at least it's being uh, supported by this organization here, which is Pregistry, or Pregistry, however they pronounce it. But uh, this was the key quote uh, from the study that I wanted to highlight here, because they talked about the rationale in the background. And it says quite clearly, COVID-19 vaccines will be used in pregnant populations. Scientific evidence regarding their safety for pregnant women and the developing fetus is lacking. Um, so there's no doubt in the minds of uh, this particular trial that the uh, evidence for the safety with respect to pregnant women and the developing fetus is not there uh, and a trial therefore needs to be carried out um, but of course that trial is being carried out um, after the deployment on a mass basis um, so some might argue that that's too late um, but certainly they've probably got a reasonable sample size uh, over the next few years. And you, you could also say it ties in quite nicely that, that the application of the vaccines in the first place is still being done under a trial basis for another year, well, over another year. Yes, indeed. Uh, and Alex, uh, I think, was it last week uh, you were mentioning uh, that for military personnel, there was some uh, effort to produce a form of words that would allow military personnel to exe be exempted from vaccination as a result of uh, religious exemptions. Um, but uh, the New York Times... Uh, pushing back against that now with a, a former pastor uh, who doesn't believe in religious exemptions to vaccine mandates. So this is a guest essay in the opinion section of the old grey lady. It looks like Peter French, who's high up at the New York Times, got his mate Curtis Chang to pen the piece. And if we read the blurb for Curtis Chang, since leaving the ministry, he's become co-founder of Christians and the Vaccine. Interesting group title. And he's also, sadly, there's another North Carolina connection for our friends and viewers down there. He's a consulting faculty member at Divinity School at Duke, North Carolina's uh, elite university. 
Well, what does Curtis Chang say? Uh, first of all, he starts off by saying religious exemptions to employer mandates are a precious right in our democracy. This is why it is especially important not to offer such exemptions to COVID vaccine mandates, because they make a mockery of Christianity and religious liberty. And then on screen after that, uh, he goes on to say that um, there is, this is the last paragraph on screen at the moment, there is no actual religious basis for exemptions from vaccine mandates in any established stream of Christianity. Uh, fundamentally ignorant, for one, just to name one example that's well known to me, of Calvinism. Uh, the Dutch Reformed uh, Calvinist Church is the dominant church in this country and has always maintained it's a, it's a breach of uh, faith in providence uh, to um, uh, accept vaccination. Uh, many streams of Islam say the same thing. I know Chang is writing about Christianity, uh, but this is wishful thinking writ large as opinion. And you can see later in the news that it has parallels in Germany in uh, not the case of COVID this time, but where um, opinion leaders are made, are, are wheeled on to say Christianity does or does not endorse this. And again, for our non-religious viewers, uh, it doesn't stop with Christianity. It's the same with any claims made about fundamental constitutional documents. Uh, these can be called old hat or whatever the case may be. Now, back to the national file, which we mentioned a moment ago, they have followed up on a question which I was asking Brian last week, which is how is it that the US Navy has much higher jab rates, uh, com compliance rates than the US Army? Brian said it would mainly perhaps largely be due to uh, being cooped up on a warship and having nowhere to flee. Now the National File has an exclusive from a top US naval officer who tells them that it's the Navy chaplains, uh, bearing in mind the previous piece we just saw, uh, who are blocking religious, religious vaccine exemption requests. Let's see what the detail of that is. So, um, the cup, there's, there's several uh, whistleblown US Navy documents uh, in this report, so do go and read the original. The first screenshot we have is that a US Navy document uh, tells us that authority to grant medical waivers for immunization requirements is a matter for the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery at the US Navy, and the authority to grant religious exemptions for those is granted with the Chief of Navy personnel. On we go, and we find that uh, at any time, uh, after the public has been told we allow religious exemptions, don't you know, at any time after that may be uh, true, the commanding officer of a serving sailor may, without prior approval, approval re revoke a sailor's authorised religious immunisation waiver or any other kind of uh, immunisation waiver. If he says, well, actually, you're going abroad now or there's some new uh, medical situation around, so you must. Now, let's see where the chaplains come into it. Uh, well, that's just the um, uh, evidence of the actual document on screen. The next, uh, yes, here we are. Another document says that command chaplains in the Navy are responsible for advising and assisting commands, that's commanding officers, with religious accommodation policy execution. Nice uh, US military speak there, meaning the Im implementation of. Um, so the commanding officers will have a quiet word with the chaplain. In fact, they're obliged to speak to a judge advocate and a chaplain prior to saying no, oh, I beg your pardon, prior to deciding whether or not to uh, grant a religious exemption to a sailor. So it looks like through the chaplaincy and through that command structure, everything's been stitched up tight in the US Navy. And when you say you have a religious objection, uh, whether Curtis Chang or, uh, or any other opinion formers have anything to do with it, your commanding officer will say, well, uh, I have a Navy chaplain on hand and he tells me that your religion is perfectly all right with vaccines and that that's that there's no argument against that
Um, well, sorry, did you want to? Well, I, I just wanted to say, Alex, one of the things that I find particularly unpleasant about this is really one of the key roles of chaplains on board ships is to be there amongst the uh, amongst the sailors, the lower deck, as it be called in this uh, in the UK, and um, to get to know those people and to understand their problems and to help re resolve issues and uncertainties and anxieties and all of those um, good uh, human characteristics. So the job of the chaplains would be very much on side of the sailors and not to be bullied by rank uh, at the top of the uh, um, executive structure on board the ship to carry out any particular policy. And that's the reason I think they've gone for the chaplains is that's cutting off the last escape route for the sailors on board the ship. Um, okay, well, coming back to the UK then, uh, a, a petition on the government petitions website, uh, which obviously closed now, it uh, was called Outlaw uh, Discrimination Against Those Who Do Not Get a COVID-19 Vaccine. Uh, and it says the individual must remain sovereign over their own body. Discrimination against those who cannot or will not be vaccinated against COVID is incompatible with a free democracy. The government must take firm action to prevent vaccination passports and discriminatory no job, uh, no jab, no job policies. Uh, well, that got 347,514 signatures, well above the 100,000 mark, which is required for a debate. And apparently the debate is actually going to happen. It's going to happen on the 20th of September, 2021. And uh, we'll be able to watch that on the UK Parliament YouTube channel. Um, so uh, we will watch with interest to see which MPs are prepared to... Uh, speak out on this issue and uh, what the uh, position they take. Now, Alex, I think we're heading uh, to the continent again and uh, uh, protests going on. Very similar parallel developments as so often happens, Mike, particularly between Britain and the Netherlands. They're in a completely different stage of the parliamentary, totally different party system to each other, both of them thoroughly corrupt. Uh, but suddenly uh, we find a bit more parallelism. So just as you mentioned this no jab, no job, uh, a petition uh, having reached success. We find that the Netherlands has had over a quarter of a million signatures and counting, shooting up right now, so that would be equivalent to over a million in the British population, uh, signing uh, a petition again, more generally against the imposition now slated for the 25th of September, uh, the imposition of vaccine passports for entry to restaurants and entertainment values, uh, venues and the night. So the footage you just saw was a protest at the weekend with hundreds of thousands of people, I think, out in Amsterdam, very difficult to get accurate numbers in such a politically controversial era. And quick as a flash, of course, uh, nothing has happened. A lot of Dutch uh, restaurateurs and entertainment venue um, owners are openly saying they have neither the inclination nor the staff to check people's QR codes at doors. Uh, whether there's going to be mass civil disobedience or not remains to be seen. Speaking of civil disobedience, the Forum for Democracy Party has several very promising members of the Dutch Parliament, and we're now going to see a silent play out of a little bit of a speech that really has got the whole country uh, talking a week ago, Gideon von Meijeren, uh, this smart young man in all senses, um, who uh, caused uproar in Parliament last week by stating the truth simply. So uh, he actually takes a Brian Gerrish line and says he is sorry to determine that the Dutch government is now the enemy of its citizens. And he calmly, as you can see from his body language, even silently, and you might see some of the English auto 
translate subtitles, which are fairly decent these days. I'm sure a proper subtitled version will go up on the FBD's international channel in due course, which is simply called Forum for Democracy International. But Gideon von Meyeren here is saying he will uh, call for civil disobedience on COVID passports if implemented, because to obey such um, pernicious legislation would be a greater crime than to um, comply with it, uh, to, to, sorry, to, um, to call for disobedience of the law. At this point, the fairly newly installed Speaker of the House, Vera Bergman, uh, starts ticking him off for the first of several times with severe looks. And now you get points of order from other uh, parties' representatives saying this is utterly disgusting. How dare you mention such things? You know nothing about um, tyranny. I am very offended. Honest, Gov, this isn't selective outrage. Uh, at which point, this is the crucial thing, this is how democracy is undermined with the party system, wherever you see it. The speaker, uh, Mrs. Bergman, says, uh, you can see how offended your colleague MPs are here. And my job, says Bergman, the Speaker of the House, is to make sure that these people you now see uh, with their... Uh, sort of, I am really offended, body language waiting to speak, to interrupt from my own. My job, says the speaker, is to make sure that these dear darlings are not offended. Now, of course, if you turn that around, then the Forum for Democracy and other non-COVID jab mandate parties could simply cause uh, a scene every time they uh, heard a point they didn't want and uh, either threaten a walkout or say we are deeply offended. But of course, the, the Speaker of the House in the Dutch or any other parliament in the West would not then say I'm going, I'm threatening to suspend the session because these darlings are so offended. It's one way traffic. In that particular speech of 20 minutes, which was about the COVID pass last week, which now looks like it's government policy regardless, uh, there were actually two or three times when the Speaker, Mrs Bergman, pressed the magic button to suspend the session and have words with von Meyeren for hurting the precious feelings of MPs by talking about the Jews and the Second World War. The most cogent point he made, and any parliamentarians listening anywhere in the world can use this point, although it's specifically Dutch, is von Meyeren said, well, look, there's a majority of you in the chamber now saying I must shut up because I'm offensive and my comparisons with the gradual shutting out of the Jews in the Third Reich are inapplicable. But may I remind you, says Mr. von Meyeren, that in the mid-30s, a Dutch member of parliament said that Hitler was a crook uh, in the uh, Dutch House of Representatives and a majority decided to vote to remove him from the chamber that day. So he says to them directly that a majority of you uh, is offended does not mean that this is not tyranny. So um, if we go back to the uh, outline on, on screen, just there, very quickly, um, this is the outline of Vermeeren's speech, because this is a party that takes itself seriously and, and sets out what's said when. Vermeeren uh, started by asking, are journalists scum? Because the faux outrage from the mainline parties now is we can't have journalists being called scum. It leads to violence and you nasty people like the forum are responsible for the violence. He, he goes on to say, I urge people not to take genetic uh, experimental gene modification um, injections. Then he talks about the um, activist journalists on the left, largely, uh, who are responsible for real violence from their, uh, by their exclusionary language. Then the uh, false and selective outrage starts. And then about 15 minutes in, he talks about the Second World War. This is the way to do it, parliamentarians and others who are watching. Uh, don't say, this reminds me of the Third Reich at every opportunity, but build up to make an appropriate point and do it calmly, as von Meyeren does. And then when you're told this is disgusting, say, well, the fact remains that it's true and wait for them to throw you out. That will be the way to achieve maximum effect and get the whole country behind you. Over the border in Germany, uh, quite comparable to what we were just talking about with religious vaccine exemptions in the US. This is not a COVID issue, but in Germany, in the northern city of Bremen, which is a city state in Germany, 
uh, a pastor has been suspended from office after first being fined 8,100 euros late last year uh, because he said that homosexuality was abnormal. And uh, the Bremen uh, pastor in question is uh, Olaf Latzel. And interestingly enough, Die Zeit, although it's right of centre, uh, had a headline there, Who Cares What the Bible Says? Again, this one day the headline will be Who Cares What Magna Carta Says? So it's not just a religious issue. And the local paper in Bremen, Binnen, Buten und Binnen, is now reporting as of this week, because this case has gone on for a while, the new development this week is that the uh, Bremen uh, court, which is hearing the appeal against the fine, um, has made a decision that an expert witness, a theologian brought in from Gießen elsewhere in Germany called Christoph Redl to testify that uh, actually uh, it's perfectly acceptable biblical position that homosexuality is a sin. He has been dismissed on the application of the prosecutor, the state prosecutor, because they managed to drag up a previous statement in which he said that Christians do not accept homosexuality as being in line with the Bible. There you are. It's got to that pitch. And again, this is wider than just issues of homosexuality or COVID. Once you see these religious exemptions being streamlined and tramlined into a single direction and one religion, one spokesman, this can be done to anyone uh, with regard to any philosophical conviction, of course. Staying in Germany, uh, Die Welt, which is a little more uh, open on its COVID reporting now than the other papers like Die Zeit is, uh, it has its latest of, shall we say, mainline revelations with it for mainline terms of is, is is pretty decent in Germany now as we've reported in recent weeks for example they were the first to report on the artificial suppression uh, of uh, intensive care bed numbers as reported in statistics in Germany now we have Jens Spahn the unloved long-time uh, health minister in Germany making uh, the admission that we cannot uh, keep testing people after they, for COVID after their jab so the key section here rather tellingly from his interview on the 30th of August, is that he is against wide-scale uh, COVID testing of those jabbed for COVID-19. And he says, quote, I do not want us to uh, regularly test jabbed people because it's simply not necessary. And when asked why, second paragraph, he says, uh, uh, we would um, then be measuring the incidence of protected people. And that would be of no value. Uh, but uh, above all, he says, if we did that, we would never get out of the pandemic. Ni auch diese pandemie. And he says in the second infection on, sl on slide at the moment, it's true that uh, infect sorry, that jabbed people could also be infectious. But, quote, he says, vulnerable groups such as those in care homes, I think we should test them in winter. I think you can see why they would want to do that if you followed UK Column News. But the vulnerable in care homes in the winter, yes, test them up to twice a week and then see what consequences follow from the false positives. But the general population, no. And he finishes off by saying, I'm federal health minister. I don't like the degree of autonomy that the states have. And I want to harmonise policy on uh, school children and care homes to make sure that everyone is as totalitarian as the rest. OK, thank you, Alex. Well, um, just to let everybody know that uh, today is uh, International Day of Democracy. Every day as partners, uh, we strive to uphold shared values, uh, values such as inclusion uh, and a whole bunch of other uh, var values like transparency and freedom uh, and equality, except when you don't have those things. Um, and the foundations of a world where the governments, where governments can work with and for the people they represent. Uh, do we have much evidence of that going on at the moment? No, no. Uh, democracies create pathways to positive change. I wasn't aware that that's what they were for, but anyway. Uh, and uh, so this is fantastic. This is World Democracy Day. Uh, and well, well, 
what, what can we say? What can we say? Well, I can say I wasn't aware earlier this morning until we came across this subject in preparing the news. Uh, but what had caught my eye was uh, the BBC. The BBC is very, very, very upset. And they're upset because apparently democracy doesn't exist in Russia. So uh, this was the article, Russia, Russian elections, how democratic are they? In Russia, ahead of this week's parliamentary and locally local elections, many opposition candidates have been prevented from running and some forced to flee. Never happens in the uh, UK that uh, candidates are bullied into silence because they're in the wrong party. Uh, it would never happen in the UK that the uh, BBC would give a, an independent candidate for, for MP six seconds to speak on, uh, on a radio programme. Uh, well, thank you for remembering that, Mike. And what uh, Mike is alluding to is that when I stood as a parliamentary candidate many years ago, I was contacted by BBC Radio Devon, who said, could they come and interview me? I said, of course, yes. Uh, the band turned up and I said to the gentleman as he unraveled his microphone, how long have I got to speak? And he said, uh, without the, sli <laughs> the slightest smile, six seconds. And uh, that was what I was given. I was able to say my name and then I was an anti-corruption candidate. And that was the end of the interview. And there were no further interviews. And I also found later that I was banned from all the hustings. So democracy in UK came to my mind, but good old BBC, uh, active on the ground to see what trouble it can stir up in Russia. So let's have a look at the little film clip that's oh. in, embedded. This is the first of the of the two. This what? is not Andrew Marr, this is the BBC Russia one. BBC Russia, okay, yeah. Yes, here we go. Let's make sure people can see them. Russia is voting, but is it free and fair? Is there any real opposition on the ballot? No. Ahead of parliamentary and local elections, the authorities insist it's an honest race. But some Kremlin critics have been forced off the ballot and out of the country. To what extent has democracy been destroyed in Russia? 100%. Now, it's often said that elections are the essence of democracy. The right to vote, to elect officials who are then accountable to the people, the right to stand for election yourself, that's the foundation of a democratic society. But the way Russian elections are organized now reflects how democracy here is in retreat. Sergei Boyko is a Novosibirsk city councillor with his own YouTube show. He believes these Russian elections have little in common with democracy. Is there any real opposition on the ballot? No. <laughs> but you're excluded from the yeah. system. For example, I could not participate, my friends could not participate, uh, any people linked with Alexei Navalny could not participate. So it's not the election. Sergei had planned to run for parliament, but because of his links to jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny, under a new law, Sergei's barred from elections for five years. What do you fear most? about the situation here? 
um, the situation in, in Russia, it could not be the uh, same on the same level. So we have two ways, uh, liberal one and authoritarian one. More jails, more pressing on opposition, on uh, uh, free thinking, on free speech. My fear is we are going uh, the second way. Across town, election preparations. All the ballot papers, more than four million of them, are being loaded into different vans to be taken across Novosibirsk region, ready for polling. On paper, at least, voters have a choice. But critics say all these parties have been vetted by the Kremlin, approved opponents in a stage-managed vote. As for the Kremlin's fiercest rivals, they're being kept at a distance. Dmitry Gudkov is a Russian opposition politician who's fled to Bulgaria. His problems began when he announced he was running for parliament. There were 15 raids, 200 officers, raids to my parents' house, parents' apartments, my brother's apartment, my own apartment. It was a very clear signal that I can't participate in the elections. They wanted to get rid of me. What kind of message were the authorities sending to you? That if Dmitry stays at, in Russia, he and his aunt will, will be sent to jail. And uh, the second message was that the jail is not the worst thing that can happen with Dmitry. To what extent has democracy been destroyed in Russia? Well, even, I would say, 100%. <laughs> yeah, because Britain doesn't send anybody to prison for doing things that they don't, that the, that the government doesn't like. It doesn't have secret trials. We don't have secret trials no, in, in UK. We're being sarcastic because, of course, we do. The BBC's description of democracy in retreat in, in Russia is exactly the picture that's uh, underway in UK at the moment. And of course, the BBC is one of the key um, uh, media outlets which is uh, assisting this situation because we're not getting a full look at what the facts are and what the truth is, whether it's uh, in UK or overseas. Let's add to that the BBC's uh, little interview with Andrew Marr uh, interview, interviewing the Russian ambassador uh, these little segments are linked together, but let's have a look at this one. It's very short. Why isn't Alexei Navalny, now a prisoner in Russia, allowed to see his own doctor? Navalny has been treated in the hospital, uh, which uh, lies uh, not so far from the place where he is serving his sentence. And uh, as I understand, he does not complain anymore uh, about his place. But it depends, of course. This I, is not a he, hospital. I think he does complain, and his personal doctor was rebuffed when she tried to see him. Uh, how about British prisoners? Do British prisoners request a personal doctor? Well, I'm, ta I'm talking about the Russian situation. <laughs> Article 99.7 of the Russian Penal Code says that inmates can use their own funds to pay for additional medical, prophylactic and other services provided at their choosing in accordance with the rules of internal procedure of correctional facilities. That is your own penal code and Russia that's is good. still not allowing Navalny to see his doctor. Uh, uh, that's good. Uh, uh, well, I uh, really um, do not have any recent information about his personal doctor, uh, but I hardly can imagine that in mm. uh, the places of prison, let it be Russian or American or whatever it is, but we have several yeah. prisoners 
uh, in the U.S. Uh, and uh, never, uh, I, I personal doctor has been allowed to see him. There are certain rules in every prison, I, I do believe also here and in Russia, that are, uh, that are uh, foreseeing the medical treatment. He has got uh, necessary medical treatment and believe me, we will take care of his medical treatment. Well, let me read you what he uh, so I'm going to call it arrogance from Andrew Marr there. But what we haven't seen is Andrew Marr asking questions of the British government or indeed the prison authorities as to why many prisoners in UK prisons have their medication withheld, whether it's thyroxin or, or heart medication, or we have very vulnerable um, child abuse survivors locked in solitary confinement for 19 months. The BBC doesn't want to discuss this. Alex, while well, I was watching your face as those video clips were playing, um, of course, all is not perfect in Russia. We would be foolish to even suggest that. But the hypocrisy of the BBC in getting in on the ground in Russia and clearly helping to stir up um, discontent and I, what follows from that, I believe, to be trouble um, is just appalling. Well, uh, we usually get viewers from Ukraine and Georgia uh, emailing us saying we're Putin fanboys and we're fools when we uh, feature Russia in this way. You've already anticipated that. Uh, a challenge to Ukrainian, Georgian, Estonian viewers. Uh, do you really believe that your democracies are not managed democracies? Uh, in the way that Russia started to be labelled by the Foreign Office and the BBC in the mid-2000s. That's why I was smirking, because I was thinking back to that period. Just in the mid-2000s, when we started seeing the uh, Western media apparatus calling Russia a managed democracy, uh, we started seeing things like Craig Murray, now jailed in Scotland, but his problems didn't start with north of the border uh, for devolved politicians. Murray at the time was challenging uh, the then Foreign Secretary Jack Straw in his English constituency, Blackburn, Lancashire. And there is BBC video footage of uh, Craig Murray, a registered candidate for that, uh, independent candidate for that seat, walking into Blackburn Cathedral. Well, he's blogged about this too, has Craig Murray, walking into the cathedral and saying, you've made an omission. I'm a candidate. I'm not on this uh, this hustings billing. And the verger of the cathedral tells him to get out. Uh, you're not on the list. We only have approved party candidates here in this hustings. It's a private arrangement. Go, go on to Craig Murray's trial for so-called contempt of court. And you find not just the Scottish Crown Office, the pro prosecutors, but even the judges uh, in Edinburgh's uh, court system saying that Murray should have done what he was told by the government. So I couldn't find a clearer example than that of managed democracy across all three branches of government. But I can't imagine that Andrew Marr will be taking off his glasses anytime soon to make that point rather stiffly to the British government. I don't think so. Thank you for that, Alex. Um, OK, now uh, let's head over to Sky News and their headline this morning was dramatic rise in online linked sexual crimes against children leads to call for tougher regulations because the great bastion of child protection, the NSPCC, and they uh, are never criticised by uh, child abuse survivors, are they? Um, very often. I think we must make that one very clear, Mike. Yes. Very often child abuse survivors uh, will say they could not trust NSPCC. That is what they say. So why they make those statements needs further research. Uh, dramatic rise in online linked sexual crimes against children. This is all happening. These headlines are coming out just in time for the uh, uh, online safety bill, which is about to be uh, submitted to Parliament. Um, and uh, well, that was followed up uh, or at the same time. Uh, we have uh, just in time for the online safety bill once again. Uh, freedom from abuse, 
uh, more important than freedom from speech, as freedom of speech on the internet poll finds. Uh, this is according to the I newspaper. Britons believe freedom from abuse is more important than freedom of speech on the internet. Um, and uh, well, I'm just going to remind, or I'm just going to take a couple of uh, quotes uh, from the uh, Protection of Freedom of Speech, a legal analysis by Francis Hoare. This was commissioned by the uh, Reclaim Party, um, and uh, it has a foreword by Jonathan Sumption uh, in it. But uh, I want to just focus on a couple of quotes from this. Uh, in the online harms white paper, the government expresses the following as a problem. Uh, there is also a real danger that hostile actors use online disinformation to undermine our democratic values and principles. Social media platforms use algorithms which can lead to echo chambers or filter bubbles uh, where a user is presented with only one type of content instead of saying a range of voices and opinions. And just as an aside, I mean, increasingly, of course, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook are becoming uh, echo chambers and filter bubbles because as people with opinions which are not allowed get kicked off those platforms, then of course the people that remain on those platforms don't get a range of voices and opinions either. This is part of what this agenda is designed to do. But anyway, uh, quoting the online harms paper again, it goes on to say, uh, this can promote disinformation by ensuring that users do not see rebuttals or other sources uh, that may disagree and can also mean that users perceive a story to be far more widely believed than it really is. So sheer hypocrisy in the online harms white paper. The online harms white paper, of course, informed uh, the content of the online safety bill. Um, but uh, Francis Hoare goes on to say, uh, what is described above is no different in principle to an interested enthusiast researching a topic in a library while he has access to material that might broaden his knowledge with, about a particular issue the enthusiast is just as likely to focus his research in one direction. Um, he goes on to say, in the government's online harms white paper, the government uses the language of security to present the free exchange of mis or disinformation as a real danger to society, encouraging hostile actors attacking the, public, uh, the body politic from within and without. Uh, disturbingly, the online safety bill imposes upon websites a duty to remove content that could harm not just children, as the NSPCC wants, uh, but adults, uh, harm caused by words and quite possibly ideas. Uh, the online harm white paper suggested that social media and other online companies should be regulated and that the regulators should be Ofcom. Uh, and this suggestion was adopted in the online safety bill. Uh, it should concern anyone in a democracy that a broadcaster is required to uphold trust in an official organization whether, rather than promote discussion about whether an organization's policies are based upon good evidence or are proportionate or ethical, and what is potentially inaccurate or harmful is, of course, uh, a matter of opinion for the presenter. And what he's uh, highlighting here is uh, a, a, an Ofcom note to broadcasters where Ofcom said that Ofcom underlines the code, uh, uh, that the code does not prohibit the broadcasting of controversial views which diverge from or challenge official authorities and public health information. However, such views should always be placed in context and not be presented in a way as to risk undermining viewers' trust in official health advice, uh, which in the current context could have potentially serious consequences for public health. Um, Francis Hoare goes on to make the point uh, and what is content that is harmful to adults? Because this is uh, very much a part of the online safety bill. Um, and he says this is a phrase used throughout the bill. It is, uh, it is any material where there is a risk, quote, a risk of content having or indirectly having a significant adverse physical 
or psychological impact on an adult of ordinary sensibilities. It takes but little imagination, he says, to consider material that would satisfy this test, the psychological harm that would, could be done by the great literature, the witnesses of warfare, uh, and this is no doubt high in the consideration of the bill's author, controversial information that's not necessarily even untrue, uh, that could lead uh, to its readers to disregard what the state considers to be in that person's best interests or for his physical welfare. Uh, this is an extremely disturbing escalation of the power of the state. The more the state considers it has a duty to protect, the more it will, of necessity, increase its power. This is inescapable if it is to be able to protect those at risk of harm to protect their safety. And I absolutely strongly recommend everybody gets a copy of this full document in protection of the freedom of speech, a legal analysis by Francis Hoare. You'll find it uh, on any search engine if you search for that. Um, but also he has just um, taken part in a discussion on this subject on the New Culture Forum channel. Uh, and if you get onto YouTube and look for online safety bill is a fundamental threat to free speech and must be opposed, uh, then uh, that is very much worth uh, listening to. Uh, this is a key piece of legislation. As he makes the point, uh, it is a power grab by the government, Alex, and is a power grab that actually has a much broader uh, scope than just the idea of online harms. Well, the, the perfect example of that broad scope, Mike, is that uniquely in the whole world, Britain allows its local council social services to steal people's children because of a, quote, risk of future emotional harm. So we've already done the worst that could be done as a government to a people by stealing their children in the thousands for a, a computer model or a gut feeling that in future somebody may have bad feelings because of their parents. Uh, so it is small fry in comparison uh, for them to uh, say that UK column has to be banned. Uh, we already see that people who tweet VAERS statistics have Twitter posting underneath, this is a misleading tweet, find out why most authorities say uh, most jabs are safe for most people. And we have also found uh, callers into BBC local radio phone-ins being cut off very abruptly, and they upload the evidence to social media video channels now. And what is uh, the panic presenters say when people talk about uh, yellow card data is, in fact, they're, they're, they're so dumb in one case, they actually say the Ofcom phrase back to the viewer so we know what the problem is. They say, no, we can't have that debate here, John. We need to have it within context. In other words, Ofcom would strip us of our license if we didn't uh, embed it in context, which means don't listen to this crackpot. That's what context means, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, look, we just got one, one slide to end on or one graphic to end on. Brian? Well, this was sent into the UK column uh, today. I have no idea who produced the graphic, so I'm going to say uh, well done, and thank you very much. But the suggested caption was that it was three rotten eggs that needed dealing with. Um, so presumably you wouldn't be eating them, but maybe some uh, uh, some shells need to be cracked here. So I think people are picking up on what's happening in the country and they're beginning to pin the policies to individual uh, people. But that would be a pretty scary breakfast on your breakfast, <laughs> your breakfast, breakfast plate. Yes. Well, we're completely out of time. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes on the live stream, uh, the UK column live stream with some extra for members.
And uh, we just say, as always, a big thank you to our supporters and subscribers and to those people who've been kind enough to also send us donations. We're very, very grateful. We can only do what we do with your support. And indeed, it will be with your support that UK Column will be expanding. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.